Memoir of Letters from Egypt by Lady Lucy Duff Gordon. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Memoir by Janet Ross. Lucy Duff Gordon, born on June twenty fourth, eighteen twenty one, was the only child of John and Sarah Austin, and inherited the beauty and the intellect of her parents. The wisdom, learning, and vehement eloquence of John Austin, author of the province of jurisprudence determined, were celebrated, and Lord Brougham used to say, If John Austin had had health, neither Lyndhurst nor I should have been Chancellor. He entered the army, and was in Sicily under Lord William Bentinck, but soon quitted an uncongenial service, and was called to the bar. In 1819 he married Sarah, the youngest daughter of John Taylor of Norwich. When they took a house in Queen Square, Westminster, close to James Mill, the historian of British India, and next door to Jeremy Bentham, whose pupil Mr. Austin was. Here, it may be said, the utilitarian philosophy of the nineteenth century was born. Jeremy Bentham's garden became the playground of the young Mills and of Lucy Austin, his coach-house was converted into a gymnasium, and his flower-beds were intersected by tapes and threads, to represent the passages of a panopticon prison. The girl grew in vigor and in sense, with a strong tinge of originality and independence and an extreme love of animals. About 1826 the Austins went to Germany, Mr. Austin having been nominated Professor of Civil Law in the new London University, and wishing to study Roman law under Niebuhr and Schlegel at Bonn. "'Our dear child,' writes Mrs. Austin to Mrs. Grote, "'is a great joy to us. She grows wonderfully, and is the happiest thing in the world.' Her German is very pretty. She interprets for her father with great joy and naivete. God forbid that I should bring up a daughter here. But at her present age I am most glad to have her here, and to send her to a school where she learns, well, writing, arithmetic, geography, and, as a matter of course, German. Lucy returned to England and transformed into a little German maiden, with long braids of hair down her back, speaking German like her own language, and well-grounded in Latin. Her mother, writing to Mrs. Reeve, her sister, says, John Mill is ever my dearest child and friend, and he really dotes on Lucy, and can do anything with her. She is too wild, undisciplined, and independent, and though she knows a great deal, it is in a strange, wild way. She reads everything, composes German verses, has imagined and put together a fairy world, dress, language, music, everything, and talks to them in the garden, but she is sadly negligent of her own appearance, and is, as Sterling calls her, Miss Orson. Lucy now goes to Dr. Biber, who has five other pupils, boys, and his own little child. She seems to take to Greek, with which her father is very anxious to have her thoroughly imbued. As this scheme, even if we stay in England, cannot last many years, I am quite willing to forgo all the feminine parts of her education for the present. The main thing is to secure her independence, both with relation to her own mind and outward circumstances. She is handsome, striking, and full of vigor and animation. From the very first Lucy Austin possessed a correct and vigorous style, and a nice sense of language, which were hereditary rather than implanted, and to these qualities was added a delightful strain of humor, shedding a current of original thought through all her writings. That her unusual gifts should have been so early developed is hardly surprising with one of her sympathetic temperament, when we remember the throng of remarkable men and women who frequented the Austin's house. 
the Mills, the Groats, the Bullers, the Carlyles, the Stirlings, Sidney Smith, Luttrell, Rogers, Jeremy Bentham, and Lord Jeffrey, were among the most intimate friends of her parents, and Tootie, as they called her, was a universal favorite with them. Once, staying at a friend's house, and hearing their little girl rebuked for asking questions, she said, My mamma never says, I don't know, or don't ask questions. In 1834, Mr. Austin's health, always delicate, broke down, and with his wife and daughter he went to Bologna. Mrs. Austin made many friends among the fishermen and their wives, but La Belle Anglaise, as they called her, became quite a heroine on the occasion of the wreck of the Amphrodite, a ship carrying female convicts to Botany Bay. She stood the whole night on the beach, in the howling storm, saved the lives of three sailors who were washed up by the breakers, and dashed into the sea and pulled one woman to shore. Lucy was with her mother, and showed the same cool courage that distinguished her in after life. It was during their stay at Bologna that she first met Heinrich Heine. He sat next to her at the table d'hote, and soon finding out that she spoke German perfectly, told her when she returned to England she could tell her friends she had met Heinrich Heine. He was much amused when she said, And who is Heinrich Heine? The poet and the child used to lounge on the pier together. She sang him old English ballads, and he told her stories in which fish, mermaids, water sprites, and a very funny old French fiddler with a poodle, who was diligently taking three sea baths a day, were mixed up in a fanciful manner, sometimes humorous, often very pathetic, especially when the water sprites brought him greetings from the North Sea. He afterwards told her that one of his most charming poems, Venich am deinem Haus, des Morgens Vorüberge, so fritz mich, da lieber Kleine, wenn ich dich am Fenster sehe, etc., was meant for her, whose magnificent eyes he never forgot. Two years later Mr. Austin was appointed royal commissioner to inquire into the grievances of the Maltese. His wife accompanied him, but so hot a climate was not considered good for a young girl, and Lucy was sent to a school at Bromley. She must have been as great a novelty to the school as the school life was to her, for with a great deal of desultory knowledge she was singularly deficient in many rudiments of ordinary knowledge. She wrote well already at fifteen, and corresponded often with Mrs. Grote and other friends of her parents. At sixteen she determined to be baptized and confirmed as a member of the Church of England. Her parents and relations were Unitarians. Lord Monteagle was her sponsor, and it was chiefly owing, I believe, to the influence of himself and his family, with whom she was very intimate in spite of her radical ideas, that she took this step. When the Austins returned from Malta in 1838, Lucy began to appear in the world. All the old friends flocked round them, and many new friends were made, among them Sir Alexander Duff Gordon, whom she first met at Lansdowne House. Left much alone, as her mother was always hard at work translating, writing for various periodicals, and nursing her husband, the two young people were thrown much together, and often walked out alone. One day Sir Alexander said to her, Miss Austin, do you know people say we are going to be married? Annoyed at being talked of, and hurt at his brusque way of mentioning it, she was just going to give a sharp answer, when he added, Shall we make it true? With characteristic straightforwardness she replied by the monosyllable, Yes, and so they were engaged. Before her marriage she translated Niebuhr's Greek legends, which were published under her mother's name. 
On the 16th of May, 1840, Lucy Austin and Sir Alexander Duff Gordon were married in Kensington Old Church, and the few eye-witnesses left still speak with enthusiasm of the beauty of the bridegroom and bride. They took a house in Queen Square, Westminster, number eight, with a statue of Queen Anne at one corner, and the talent, beauty, and originality, joined with a complete absence of affectation of Lady Duff Gordon, soon attracted a remarkable circle of friends. Lord Lansdowne, Lord Monteagle, Mrs. Norton, Thackeray, Dickens, Elliot Warburton, Tennyson, Tom Taylor, Kinglake, Henry Taylor, and many more were habitués, and every foreigner of distinction sought an introduction to the Duff Gordons. I remember as a little child seeing Leopold Rank walking up and down the drawing-room, and talking vehemently in an ola podria of English, French, German, Italian, and Spanish, with now and then a Latin quotation in between. I thought he was a madman. When Monsieur Guizot escaped from France on the outbreak of the Revolution, his first welcome and dinner was in Queen Square. The first child was born in 1842, and soon afterwards Lady Duff Gordon began her translation of The Amber Witch, The French in Algiers, by Lamping, and Feuerbach's Remarkable Criminal Trials, followed in quick succession, and together my father and mother translated Rank's Memoirs of the House of Brandenburg, and Sketches of German Life. A remarkable novel by Léon de Valli, Stella and Vanessa, had remained absolutely unnoticed in France until my mother's English version appeared, when it suddenly had a great success, which he always declared he owed entirely to Lady Duff Gordon. In a letter written to Mrs. Austin from Lord Lansdowne's beautiful villa at Richmond, which he lent to the Duff Gordons after a severe illness of my father's, my mother mentions Hassan el Bakit, a black boy. He is an inch taller for our grandeur, Pusinfo. He thinks me a great lady and himself a great butler. Hassan was a personage in the establishment. One night, on returning from a theatrical party at Dickens's, my mother found the little boy crouching on the doorstep. His master had turned him out of doors because he was threatened with blindness, and having come now and then with messages to Queen Square, he found his way, as he explained, to die on the threshold of the beautiful pale lady. His eyes were cured, and he became my mother's devoted slave and my playmate, to the horror of Mr. Hilliard, the American author. I perfectly recollect how angry I was when he asked how Lady Duff Gordon could let a negro touch her child, whereupon she called us to her, and kissed me first, and Hassan afterwards. Some years ago I asked our dear friend Kingslake about my mother and Hassan, and received the following letter. Can I, my dear Janet, how can I trust myself to speak of your dear mother's beauty in the phase it had reached when I first saw her? The classic form of her features, the noble poise of her head and neck, her stately height, her uncolored yet pure complexion, caused some of the beholders at first to call her beauty statuesque, and others to call it majestic, some pronouncing it to be even imperious. But she was so intellectual, so keen, so autocratic, sometimes even so impassioned in speech, that nobody feeling her powers could go on feebly comparing her to a statue, or a mere queen or empress. All this touches only the beauteous surface. The stories, which were told me by your dear mother herself, are incidentally illustrative of her kindness to fellow-creatures in trouble or suffering. Hassan, it is supposed, was a Nubian, and originally, as his name implies, a Mohammedan. 
he came into the possession of English missionaries, who had probably delivered him from slavery, and it resulted that he not only spoke English well and without foreign accent, but he was always ready with phrases in use amongst pious Christians, and liked, when he could, to apply them as a means of giving honour and glory to his beloved master and mistress. So that if, for example, it happened that, when they were not at home, a visitor called on a Sunday, he was sure to be told by Hassan that Sir Alexander and Lady Duff Gordon were at church, or even, for his diction was equal to this, that they were attending divine service. Your mother had valour enough to practise true Christian kindness under conditions from which the bulk of good people might too often shrink, when on hearing that a Mary, once known to the household, had brought herself into trouble by omitting the precaution of marriage, my lady determined to secure the girl a good refuge by taking her as a servant. Before taking this step, however, she assembled the household, declared her resolve to the servants, and ordered that, on pain of instant dismissal, no one of them should ever dare to say a single unkind word to Mary. Poor Hassan, small, black as jet, but possessed with an idea of the dignity of his sex, conceived it his duty to become the spokesman of the household, and accordingly, advancing a little in front of the neat aproned, tall, wholesome maid-servants, he promised in his and their name a full and careful obedience to the mistress's order. But then, wringing his hands and raising them over his head, he added these words, What a lesson to us all, my lady! On the birth of a little son, Hassan triumphantly announced to all callers, we have got a boy. Another of his delightful speeches was made one evening when Prince Louis Napoleon, the late emperor of the French, dropped in unexpectedly to dinner. Please, my lady, said he, on announcing that dinner was ready, I ran out and bought two pennyworth of sprats for the honour of the house. Though I was only six, I distinctly remember the Chartist riots in 1848. William Bridges Adams, the engineer, an old friend of my great-uncle Philip Taylor, had a workshop at Bow, and my mother helped to start a library for the men, and sometimes attended meetings and discussed politics with them. They adored her, and when people talked of possible danger she would smile and say, My men will look after me. On the evening of April 9 a large party of stalwart men in fustian jackets arrived at our house and had supper. Tom Taylor made speeches and proposed toasts, which were cheered to the echo, and at last my mother made a speech too, and wound up by calling the men her Gordon volunteers. The hip-hip-hurrah with which it was greeted startled the neighbors, who for a moment thought the Chartists had invaded the quiet precincts of the square. To Mrs. Austin, who was then in Paris, her daughter wrote, on April 10th, Dearest Mutter, I had only time to write once yesterday, as all hands were full of bustle in entertaining our guests. I never wished to see forty better gentlemen than we had here last night. As all was quiet, we had supper, cold beef, bread and beer, with songs, sentiments, and toasts, such as success to the roof we are under, liberty, brotherhood, and order. Then they bivouacked in the different houses till five this morning, when they started home. Among the party was a stray policeman who looked rather wonderstruck. Tom Taylor was capital, made short speeches, told stories, and kept all in good high humor, and Alec came home from patrolling as a special constable, and was received with great glee and affection. All agreed that the fright, to us at least, was well made up by the kindly and pleasant evening. As no one would take a penny, we shall send books to the library, or a contribution to the school, all our neighbors being quite anxious to pay, 
though not willing to fraternize. I shall send cravats as a badge to the Gordon volunteers. I enclose a letter from Ethan Kinglake about Paris, which will interest you. My friends of yesterday unanimously decided that Louis Blanc would just suit the lazy set. We had one row, which, however, ceased on the appearance of our stalwart troop. Indeed, I think one Birmingham Smith, a handsome fellow six feet high, whose vehement disinterestedness would neither allow to eat, drink, or sleep in the house, would have scattered them. Mr. and Mrs. Austin established themselves at Weybridge in a low, rambling cottage, and we spent some summers with them. The house was cold and damp, and our dear Hassan died in 1850 from congestion of the lungs. I always attributed my mother's bad health to the incessant cold she caught there. I can see before me now her beautiful, pale face bending over poor Hassan as she applied leeches to his chest, which a new maid refused to do, saying, with a toss of her head, Lor, my lady, I couldn't touch either of em. The flash of scorn with which she regarded the girl softened into deep affection and pity when she looked down on her faithful Nubian servant. In 1851 my father took a house at Escher, which was known as the Gordon Arms, and much frequented by our friends. In a letter written about that time to C. J. Bailey, then secretary to the governor of the Mauritius, Lady Duff Gordon gives the first note of alarm as to her health. I fear you would think me very much altered since my illness. I look thin, ill, and old, and my hair is growing gray. This I consider hard upon a woman just over her thirtieth birthday. I continue to like Escher very much. I don't think we could have placed ourselves better. Kinglake has given Alec a great handsome chestnut mare, so he is well mounted, and we ride merrily. I expressed such exultation at the idea of your return that my friends, all but Alec, refused to sympathize. Phillips, Malaise, and Dicky Doyle talked of jealousy, and Tom Taylor muttered something about a hated rival. Meanwhile, I'll send friendly greetings to you. One summer, Macaulay was often at Escher, his brother in law having taken a house near ours. He shared my mother's admiration for Miss Austen's novels, and they used to talk of her personages as though they were living friends. If, perchance, my grandfather Austen was there, the talk grew indeed fast and furious, as all three were vehement, eloquent, and enthusiastic talkers. When my mother went to Paris in the summer of 1857, she saw Heine again. As she entered the room, he exclaimed, Oh, Lucy still has the great brown eyes. He remembered every little incident and all the people who had been in the inn at Bologna. I, for my part, could hardly speak to him, my mother wrote to Lord Houghton, who asked her to give him some recollections of the poet for his monographs. So shocked was I by his appearance. He lay on a pile of mattresses, his body wasted, so that it seemed no bigger than a child's under the sheet that covered him, the eyes closed, and the face altogether like the most painful and wasted ecce homo ever painted by some old German painter. His voice was very weak, and I was astonished at the animation with which he talked. Evidently his mind had wholly survived his body. He wished to give my mother the copyright of all his works, made out lists how to arrange them, and gave her carte blanche to cut out what she pleased. And was especially eager that she should do a prose translation of his songs against her opinion of its practicability. To please him, she translated Almanzor and several short poems into verse, the best translations I know. After trying Ventnor for two winters, my mother went out to the Cape of Good Hope in a sailing vessel, 
but on her return was unfortunately persuaded to go to Osborne in the autumn of 1862, which did her great harm. Thence she went to Egypt, where the dry, hot climate seemed to arrest the malady for a short time. The following memoir, written by Mrs. Norton in the Times, gives a better picture of her than could any words of mine. The two talented and beautiful women were intimate friends, and few mourned more deeply for Lucy Duff Gordon than Caroline Norton. In Memoriam The brief phrase whose solemnity prefaced millions of commonplace epithets before Tennyson taught grief to speak, lamenting his dead friend in every phrase and variety of regret. With such gradation and difference of sorrow wilt the recent death of a very remarkable woman, Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon, be mourned for by all who knew her, and with such a sense of blank loss will they long continue to lament one whose public success as an author was only commensurate with the charm of her private companionship. Inheriting from both parents the intellectual faculties which she so nobly exercised, her work has been ended in the very noontide of life by premature failure of health, and the long exile she endured for the sake of a better climate has failed to arrest, though it delayed, the doom foretold by her physicians. To that exile we owe the most popular, perhaps, of her contributions to the literature of her country, letters from the Cape and letters from Egypt, the latter more especially interesting from the vivid, lifelike descriptions of the people among whom she dwelt her aspirations for their better destiny, and the complete amalgamation of her own pursuits and interests with theirs. She was a settler, not a traveller, among them. Unlike Lady Hester Stanhope, whose fantastic and half-insane notions of rulership and superiority have been so often recorded for our amazement, Lady Duff Gordon kept the simple frankness of heart and desire to be of service to her fellow-creatures without a thought of self or a taint of vanity in her intercourse with them. Not for a lack of flattery or of real enthusiastic gratitude on their part. It is known that when at Thebes, on more than one of her journeys, the women raised the cry of joy as she passed along, and the people flung branches and raiment on her path, as in the old biblical descriptions of Eastern life. The source of her popularity was in the liberal kindliness of spirit with which she acted on all occasions, more especially towards those she considered the victims of bad government and oppressive laws. She says of herself, One's pity becomes a perfect passion when one sits among the people as I do, and sees all they endure. Least of all can I forgive those among Europeans and Christians who can help to break these bruised reeds. And again, would that I could excite the interest of my country in their suffering. Some conception of the value of public opinion in England has penetrated even here sympathizing, helping, doctoring their sick, teaching their children, learning the language, Lady Duff Gordon lived in Egypt, and in Egypt she has died, leaving a memory of her greatness and goodness, such as no other European woman ever acquired in that country. It is touching to trace her lingering hopes of life and amended health in her letters to her husband and her mother, and to see how, as they faded out, there rose over those hopes the grander light of fortitude and submission to the will of God. Gradually, how gradually the limits of this notice forbid us to follow, hope departs, and she begins bravely to face the inevitable destiny. And then comes the end of all, the strong yet tender announcement of her own conviction that there would be no more meetings, but a grave open to receive her in a foreign land. Dearest Alec, 
do not think of coming here, as you dread the climate. Indeed, it would be almost too painful to me to part from you again, and as it is, I can wait patiently for the end, among people who are kind and loving enough to be comfortable, without too much feeling of the pain of parting. The leaving Luxor was rather a distressing scene, as they did not think to see me again. The kindness of all the people was really touching, from the Kadi, who made ready my tomb among his own family, to the poorest fellaheen. Such are the tranquil and kindly words with which she prefaces her death. Those who remember her in her youth and beauty, before disease rather than time had altered the pale heroic face, and bowed the slight stately figure, may well perceive some strange analogy between soul and body in the Spartan firmness which enabled her to pen that last farewell so quietly. But to the last her thought was for others, and for the services she could render. In this very letter, written, as it were, on the verge of the tomb, she speaks with gratitude and gladness of the advancement of her favorite attendant, Omar. This Omar had been recommended to her by the janissary of the American consul-general, and so far back as 1862, when, in Alexandria, she mentioned having engaged him, and his hopeful prophecy of the good her Nile life is to do her. My cough is bad, but Omar says I shall lose it, and eat plenty as soon as I see a crocodile. Omar could not leave her, and he had his reward. One of the last events in the life of this gifted and liberal-minded Englishwoman was the visit to her Dahabia, or Nile-boat, of the Prince and Princess of Wales. Then poor Omar's simple and faithful service to his dying mistress was rewarded in a way he could scarcely have dreamt, and Lady Duff Gordon thus relates the incident. Omar sends you his heartfelt thanks, and begs the boat may remain registered at the consulate in your name, as a protection for his use and benefit. The prince has appointed him his dragoman, but he is sad enough, poor fellow. All his prosperity does not console him for the loss of the mother he found in the world. Mohammed at Luxor wept bitterly, and said, Poor I, poor my children, poor all the people, and kissed my hand passionately, and the people at Esna asked leave to touch me for a blessing, and every one sent delicate bread and their best butter and vegetables and lambs. They are kinder than ever now that I can no longer be of any use to them. If I live till September I will go up to Esna, where the air is softest and I cough less. I would rather die among my own people on the Said than here. Can you thank the prince for Omar, or shall I write? He was most pleasant and kind, and the princess, too. She is the most perfect, simple-mannered girl I ever saw. She does not even try to be civil like other great people, but asks blunt questions and looks at one so heartily with her clear, honest eyes that she must win all hearts. They were more considerate than any people I have seen, and the prince, instead of being gracious, was, if I may say so, quite respectful in manner. He is very well-bred and pleasant, and has, too, the honest eyes that make one sure he has a kind heart. My sailors were so proud at having the honor of rowing him in our own boat, and of singing to him. I had a very good singer in the boat. Long will her presence be remembered and wept for among the half-civilized friends of her exile, the poor, the sick, the needy, and the oppressed. She makes the gentle, half-playful boast in one of her letters from the Nile that she is very popular, and has made many cures as a Hakim, or doctor, and that a Circassian had set up with a dying Englishman because she had nursed his wife. 
the picture of the Circassian sitting up with a dying Englishman because an English lady had nursed his wife is infinitely touching, and had its parallel in the speech of an old Scottish landlady known to the writer of this notice, whose son had died in the West Indies among strangers. And they were so good to him, said she, that I vowed if I ever had a sick lodger I would do my best for that stranger in remembrance. In remembrance? Who shall say what seeds of kindly intercommunication that dying Englishwoman, of whom and of whose works we have been speaking, may have planted in the arid eastern soil? Or what bread she may have cast on those Nile waters, which shall be found again after many days? Out of evil cometh good, and certainly out of her sickness and suffering good came to all within her influence. Lady Duff Gordon's printed works were many. She was an excellent German scholar, and had the advantage in her translations from that difficult language of her labors being shared by her husband. Ranke, Niebuhr, Feuerbach, Moltke, and others owe their introduction to our English reading public to the industry and talent of her pen. She was also a classic scholar of no mean pretensions. Perhaps no woman of our own time, except Mrs. Somerville and Mrs. Browning in their very different styles, combined so much erudition with so much natural ability. She was the daughter of Mr. Austin, the well-known professor of jurisprudence, and his gifted wife, Sarah Austin, whose name is familiar to thousands of readers, and whose social brilliancy is yet remembered with extreme admiration and regret by the generation immediately preceding our own. That Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon, inherited the best of the intellect and qualities of both these parents will, we think, hardly be disputed, and she had, besides, of her own, a certain generosity of spirit, a widespread sympathy for humanity in general, without narrowness or sectarianism, which might well prove her faith modelled on the sentence which appeals too often in vain from the last page of the printed Bible to resenting and dissenting religionists, multi terracolis lingae, colistilibus una. The last two years of my mother's life were one long struggle against deadly disease. The last winter was cheered by the presence of my brother, but at her express desire he came home early in summer to continue his studies, and my father and I were going out to see her when the news came of her death at Cairo on July 14, 1869. Her desire had been to be among her own people at Thebes, but when she felt she would never see Luxor again, she gave orders to be buried as quietly as possible in the cemetery of Cairo. The memory of her talent, simplicity, stately beauty, and extraordinary eloquence, and her almost passionate pity for any oppressed creature, will not easily fade. She bore great pain, and what was almost a greater trial, absence from her husband, her little daughter Uriana, and her many friends, uncomplainingly, gleaning what consolation she could by helping her poor Arab neighbors, who adored her, and have not, I am told, forgotten the great lady who was so good to them. The first volume of Lady Duff Gordon's Letters from Egypt was published by Messrs. Macmillan and Company in May, 1865, with a preface by her mother, Mrs. Austin, who edited them, and was obliged to omit much that might have given offense and made my mother's life uncomfortable, to say the least, in Egypt. Before the end of the year the book went through three editions. In 1875 a volume containing the last letters from Egypt, to which were added Letters from the Cape, reprinted from Vacation Tourists, 1864, 
with a memoir of my mother by myself, was published by the Messrs. Macmillan and Company. A second edition appeared in 1876. I have now copied my mother's letters as they were written, omitting only the purely family matter which is of no interest to the public. Edward Lear's drawing of Luxor was printed in Three Generations of Englishwomen, edited by Mrs. Ross, but the other illustrations are now reproduced for the first time. The names of villages alluded to in the letters have been spelled as in the atlas published by the Egyptian Exploration Fund. Janet Ross End of Memoir Read by Sibella Denton All LibriVox files are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.